0: In this week's podcast, Brother Titus speaks on the topic of standards. So about standards, nothing sends more terror through a crowd than hearing something about standards. But trust me, this is not what you think. I'll go to Isaiah chapter 59, 19. Now, this is a verse that I know people have spoken about recently, and it's something that God laid on my heart. And I think I'm gonna take a little different approach than perhaps you have heard. Now, here's my disclaimer. To the extent that anything that I say contradicts anything that Pastor Mooney has taught, I am wrong and he is right. If anything I say contradicts anything that Brother Kilman said, I am probably wrong and he is right. However, if I contradicted something that Brother Lopez said, one of us is wrong <laughs> and more, more than that i will not say <laughs> okay so let's look at this verse let's look at this verse so shall they fear the name of the lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun you know people ignore the first part of that verse that first sentence is really powerful so they shall fear the name of the lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun so from the west to the east they're going to fear the name of the Lord. That's powerful stuff. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. When the enemy shall come in like a flood the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Now as it's not a lot of room in here. As the sorry, I'm good. I'm good. So you know As, one of the things that I do as an attorney is we have to do what we refer to as a construction analysis, all right? Now, that's just a fancy way of saying, what do we mean? So, you can read a sentence, and you will say, what does that really mean? What does it mean when they said that? What do these words mean? And there are times when we'll do a litigation where the entire thing will be won and lost, at what we refer to as a Markman hearing which is where the judge tells us what the words mean and we'll have experts and declarations and we will argue f- for weeks about what does it mean and then we will decide whether somebody uh, broke the contract or is guilty of some crime. So let's look at this first when the end or this phrase when the enemy shall come in like a flood now one construction is that the enemy comes in like a flood floods are powerful things lots of energy absolutely unstoppable when the water comes flowing through there's nothing you can do absolutely no force nothing that we can build can stop the force of a flood It is completely indefensible. I have some friends who fish every year, and uh, they had decided to tent camp instead of staying in cabins. And they thought it would be a wonderful thing to camp at the edge of the river. A pastoral scene, beautiful, wonderful outside. And they went to sleep, and it started to rain. And they stayed asleep and the river came up. <laughs> and they didn't wake up until they were, within, they were in six inches of water, Now I don't know what they had done before they went to sleep. But they didn't wake up until they were in six inches of water, and all they could do was get their carcasses out of their sleeping bags, into the truck, drive away, and watch their tent go down the river. I mean, there's just, when the water comes up, when the flood comes in, there's not a lot you can do to stop it or to protect yourself from it. So, one construction of this phrase is is that the enemy is the one that comes in like a flood. But there are people who argue vehemently that there's another comma in that phrase, or the comma should be moved. And so, now the construction is, when the enemy shall come in, comma, like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard. Now, that changes the meaning of that a lot who's coming in like a flood? The spirit of the Lord is. Now the Lord's unstoppable. Well, I think I like that better. Now, if you were to, is that the accurate reading of your view? Okay, one of the things that's fascinating is, you know, you can get into these chat rooms on the internet where people argue about what verses mean. And you know, people can become very unchristian about disagreeing about what a verse says. I cannot believe the amount the number of electrons the amount of emotion and the amount of energy that is spent arguing about whether there's another comma in this sentence or not but the debate is vicious as are the debaters and I can tell you that for our purposes tonight I don't care about that because that's not what I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about is the fact that no matter Which side of the equation is a flood? Regardless of which side is a flood, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, is going to lift up a standard against him. Ah. Ah. So we can, one of the other great techniques in the law is, is to make one part of someone's argument irrelevant. Right. Since I'm not going to worry about who's a flood. I don't have to decide it right now. So we're going to move on to yet another phrase. How do we interpret the word standard? You ever thought about that? What does that mean? What is it that the author here was talking about? What was God trying to convey when he inspired the author to write this? So I do not read the ancient Hebrew. This is the Old Testament, so it's Hebrew. I do not read Hebrew. And so I have to go to resources where someone has read the Hebrew for me and tells me here are the things that it could be. Here's the first one. According to Strong's, number H4941, the word could be mishpat, which is a legal word, a legal term that has lots of meanings. Can be interpreted in many different ways, it's used many different ways. However, they all center around passing or declaring judgment, according to Strong's. Okay? So if we take that meaning, then when the enemy comes in, whether it's as a flood or not, the Spirit of the Lord will exercise authority and pass judgment on the evil. I can live with that. However, Strong's number 5551 states that it's more of a combat term and refers to, are you okay? (laughs) Yeah, all right. Refers to a symbol or a flag that serves as a rallying point for a military or to lead a charge. So if we take that meaning, when the enemy comes in, The Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard, lift up something to rally forces and lead the charge against evil. So when I I think about that, so now we've we've kind of torn this verse apart, we've taken a look at the critical words in the verse, we come away with, you know, maybe the Spirit of the Lord comes in like a flood, maybe evil comes in like a flood, but regardless of how it happens, God's going to raise up a standard. And that standard is either going to be God passing judgment, and taking care of it himself, or through the agency of someone else, or something's going to raise up as a rallying point, something for people, forces to align around to confront the enemy and the evil and take care of it. So, can we agree? Let's agree together that now we have a construction of this verse. But, regardless of which meaning we adopt, You know, obviously, the Spirit of the Lord will react to the enemy. And I think we can agree that God, being omnipotent, all-powerful, he alone is all that is necessary to confront the evil or the enemy. That's all that's required, is, is God can just do it. He can just speak it out of existence. He can crush it. He can send it, you know, to the depths of hell. He can do whatever he wants. But the biblical record suggests a recurring motif a theme that is repeated over and over and over again is that for some reason God prefers the agency of humans to respond to the enemy's advances. So, let me give you a New Testament example. Um, When Saul was converted to Paul, the early apostolic church was in a bit of a mess. When Saul had his, his Damascus Road experience. He was struck down, and he became the Apostle Paul. He was converted, and then helped set right and to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. Right. So through the agency of Paul, God responded to the enemy coming in like a flood. The early church was under a lot of persecution. I mean people of some of the early the early church had been per, had been executed they were in prison they were having great difficulty moving around they were being chased by uh the the Jewish leaders of the day wherever they went Saul himself who later became Paul was leading the charge and I mean this wasn't just locking people up they were killing people they were getting writs to allow them to go and just execute people they were in a mess and God raised up a standard it was a very different kind of of idea right the standard was paul saul became paul and became the vehicle by which god confronted that evil but there's a another example in the old testament that i really would like for us to consider during our time together this evening and this comes from daniel chapters 1 through 3 we're not going to read 3 chapters everybody say praise the lord <laughs> i'm not going to read 3 chapters but this is where the story is if you want to go back and read it for yourself and I'm just going to pull certain pieces out of it so here is here is where the evil had come in Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had captured Jerusalem and taken its citizens captive okay so they're in captivity but they picked out Daniel and three of his colleagues to be trained for service to the king they had gotten picked out of the crowd and this is in chapter one we're going to read Uh, selected verses. So verse five says, and the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine that he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And the prince of the Munich said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children, which are of your sort? Then shall, she, ye, then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. So to get past the verbiage here, the, the guy that was in charge of him said, Hi, hun. My wife came in. Yeah, that's not what he said but the, the, he uh, so what what he said to them was I don't want to eat this stuff I don't want to defile myself with that food and we'll we'll explore that concept a little bit more later and the the guard or the the head of the of the, of the guard basically said look if I don't feed you this stuff you're gonna cut my head off if you come up looking sick and pale and you don't have the energy if you don't follow the king's plan you don't follow the enemy's plan if you don't follow evil's plan I'm gonna get in trouble All right, and I I I can't do that well Daniel had another idea and he said prove thy servants I beseech thee 10 days and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink then let our countenances be looked upon before thee And the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this manner and proved them ten days. So effectively he said, Fine, we'll give this a try for ten days. We'll take a look at you. And if you start looking gaunt or weak or pallid, you don't look right. You don't look right. I'm gonna you're gonna have to you're gonna have to do this. And at the end of the ten days their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Belzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. Which is just vegetables, basically, just vegetables. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So what, what did they do? They stood up to the enemy. They made a stand and they said, we're just not gonna do that. It would have been very easy for them to conform. Perhaps even wise for them to do that. I mean, they were taking a huge risk by saying, I'm not gonna eat what you eat. I'm not gonna drink what you drink because I have a tradition. And my tradition is, That we don't eat that stuff my tradition is that we don't drink that stuff my tradition is that we don't go there do that okay so I think you know this is a it's a uh, sort of a an example a metaphor for a lot of the things that the church deals with today right I don't think that there's any surprise that there are lots of new thoughts, if you will, new approaches to the apostolic movement. People are wanting to say, we can change. We can accommodate more of these things. And I would like for us to consider tonight, just consider tonight, the three Hebrew children. They were in a desperate spot, and they said, I'm going to hold to my traditions. I'm going to hold to them. Did they make sense in Babylon? Probably not. Did they look weird to the outside world? Certainly so. But they made the decision, I'm going to stay with my traditions. As a result, God gave them favor. He gave them wisdom. And I want you to catch this. He positioned them for greater things. He positioned them for greater things. This is a critical point, okay? By holding true to their traditions, even though it would have been very easy for them to do otherwise, they were positioned for greater things. Let's move on. Daniel chapter 3. And this is a story, you guys all know these stories, but bear with me. So Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three square cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So I've tried to jump through and just hit the the key points instead of telling the whole story for the purposes of time. But basically, if you didn't bow down, the expectation was Nebuchadnezzar built this thing, and his expectation was everybody's going to bow down to this god. Everybody's going to do it. And if you didn't, they were going to throw you into the they were going to burn you alive. Simple as that. It was conform or die. Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. Okay? Now, there's a a lot of complex political story here that we don't it's not germane to the point. But the fact of the matter is, is somebody ratted them out, okay? Somebody went to the king and said, There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? So they were confronted. I mean, this wasn't just a peripheral issue. This wasn't just a, a small thing. They were asked point blank, Do you not worship my gods? Do you not Follow my decree? Don't you do what I do? So you think I'm wrong? Right? Those are the kinds of questions that we run into. Right? Now, if ye be ready that at that time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye shall fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, okay? So he's saying. When you hear the music, bow down and we're good. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Here are the gods. What God is left? What are you waiting for? But catch what they said Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter King I'm not even worried about it King I'm not afraid King I know you have the power to have me thrown in the furnace but I'm going to tell you straight here's the way it is if it be so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand O King But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. God might save us. He might not. But here's the deal. I have a tradition. And I have a belief system. And my tradition and my beliefs say, I will not bow down to your gods. I won't do it. I cannot do it. If that means i got to die, I guess i got to die, but I'm not going to do it. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast him in the fiery furnace, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Now, I submit to you that this would qualify as the enemy coming in like a flood. All right? I think we can all agree that, that whether the verse means that the enemy's coming in like a flood or that God will come in, I don't know. But what I'm telling you is the enemy has come in. They didn't just want to make me do something I didn't want to do. They just threw me in a fiery furnace. Okay? And a verse I didn't write down said that it was so hot that the guys that threw them in fell over dead from the heat. Okay? This, was a, this was a hot furnace. But here's what happened. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men, upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of the fire had passed on them. So they looked in, and the Spirit of the Lord joined them, put his hands around them in the middle of the fire. Okay? But I submit to you that the standard that was raised up were the three Hebrew children. God raised them up as a standard, and here's what happened. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who have sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word, and yielded their bodies that they might not serve, nor worship any god except their own God. So let's let's think back. In this example, the humans had positioned themselves for service. And you've got to go all the way back to chapter 1, right? And you have to ask yourself, what if they would have eaten the king's meat? So the, I mean, Because now the question becomes, if they would have eaten the king's meat, would they have been able to say, I won't bow down to your God? Would they have been able to do that? I don't know. Because remember, they had been given favor. They had been given wisdom. They had been given positions of power. Would anybody have even cared about them if they had eaten the king's meat? Maybe not. Maybe not. They refused to compromise their traditions and refused to acknowledge or bow down to any god other than the one true God. When the enemy came in, the Spirit of the Lord raised them up as a standard against the evil, right? Changed the king's thinking. Changed the rule of Babylon now because they had positioned themselves to be raised up as a standard. Now, I don't want to make a doctrine about this, but I think that the symbolism here is pretty clear. And it speaks to us even today that there are forces that are driving and pushing and dividing and stretching the apostolic movement today. It's absolutely true. I mean, I go home and and visit uh, family members. I, I, I visit churches where I used to attend, and things aren't the way that they used to be. And everybody just says, it's okay. I haven't given anything up. And I have to answer, but yeah, you have. You have given something up. And what you've given up are the traditions. One of my favorite discussion points that drives people nuts, and my wife can attest to this, is that I know the history of the apostolic movement. And I know that the people who were thinking about these things When all of this got started, when the Holy Ghost fell again in the United States and around the world and organizations were being built and people were thinking about how do we live? How should we live? How should we live? These people prayed. They fasted. They travailed before God to get a vision for what should his church look like in America. Okay? And so when I on the rare occasions that I engage anybody in a conversation about new ways of thinking and new ways of doing things, my first question is, did you fast? Did you pray? Did you prevail before God? Did you spend hours, and did God give you this vision that said, it is now okay to go this way? And you know what the answer is? I don't want to talk to you anymore. Right? Right? Because if you've you've got this vision of God that says it's okay now, if you've got this vision that says it's okay now, where would you get the vision? Where did it come from? I'll get off this now. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. So God did the work. There's no question that God did the work. But he was able to use the three Hebrew children because they had prepared and preserved themselves in a state where they were capable of doing God's work. That's the challenge for your generation. Okay? Are you going to prepare and are you going to preserve yourself so that you're in a state that is capable of being raised up as a standard? as the enemy comes rolling in. I mean, that's a question that we all have to deal with every day. And it's a personal question. you got to decide that. I can't decide it for you. You have to decide it for yourself. How do I want to be used? Where do I want to be? How do I want to position myself? What do I want to be capable of in God's kingdom? So I want to talk another passage and just talk a little bit about what are the barriers to service what are the barriers to service and this one and I'm only going to talk about one and it is a this is kind of a subtle a subtle point but let's talk about it and this is in second kings chapter 13 verses 14 through 19 now elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died and joash the king of israel came down unto him and wept over his face, and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. Now, think about this. So, Elisha's dead, dying. They ended up burying where the arrow landed. So, Elisha is dying. The king is destroyed. Elisha is giving him one last message. And here's my prophecy. You're going to be able to overcome Syria. Okay? You're going to be able to overcome Syria. And Elisha said, do this and the king just did what, what the man of God said and then Elisha said do this and he did exactly what the man of God said and then he said do this and he did exactly what the God, son of man of God said right there was a pattern of that but then he left the king to his own choice and he said now hit the ground hit the ground hit it three times did he obey? Yeah. But he was making a choice. The king made a choice. Because the prophet had told him hit the ground, you're going to smite Syria. Now, if you know the history of Israel at that time, the Syrians were a real pain, right? Huge problem. Huge, constantly at war, constantly subterfuge. It was a mess. And what the prophet said is, strike the ground, and you're going to be able to smite Syria. Now, if I'm, really, if I'm really in tune to what the prophet's saying, I'm thinking, let me hit the ground a whole bunch of times. Because I'm just going to pound these guys to dust. Right? But the king went, boom, boom, boom. Okay, good. I did it. I minded. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then... Hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. So you're only going to be able to wound them. You're going to be able to set them back. You're not going to be able to wipe them out. So you're probably thinking, okay, Brother Titus, you've come off the rails. What are you talking about? Well, here's the point that I'm trying to make. I would like to submit for you for consideration tonight that we live beneath our privilege and by living beneath our privilege we are limiting what God can do with us and what God how in areas where God can use us. you notice that the king was obedient to a point he did what he was told one step at a time there was no passion There was no vision. There was a lack of commitment. I'm only willing to go so far. Okay, so just so you know, this is my last slide. Done. But the point that I would like for you to think about in closing is where am I in my I come to church. A lot of people go to church. I have aligned myself with a certain appearance. Okay? A lot of people do that. I pay my tithes. Well, good. That's what the Bible says to do. I believe in one God. Excellent. The devil also believes in troubles. Okay? And I'm not trying to be critical. These are all important things. The critical piece here is, what are you doing, you know, beyond tithes. Tithes is your duty, right? Tithes is the duty that you have to the church, to God. You haven't given anything yet. That was God's anyway. What you put in the offering, okay? That's what is from your, your part. That you're going to give over to God Now I'm not talking about money That's not why I'm here What I'm talking about is Take that analogy into your service Take that analogy into your walk Take that analogy into your commitment Where have you positioned yourself To be able to do My wife has often coached me That I am terrible at ending a lesson And I expect to hear the same thing On the way home tonight But that is what I had to share with you today, (laughs) and I now yield the floor to my brother.